Isaiah 6. Um, I'll just read through the first four verses again, and then we'll, um, we'll recap a little. Um, and then uh, pick up in verse 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come again to your word to study, Lord, that you would uh, bless this time and that we would, we would come ever more to, to honor you, to fear you, to give you glory, knowing who you are and knowing what you've done. Amen. So, uh, chapter 6, we're looking at this initial vision of, um, of Isaiah. Um, it is, I think, the first thing chronologically that happens in uh, the book of Isaiah. But we've had five chapters to get here. And as we've seen multiple times already, this is, has set the foundation so that we might understand this chapter with greater depth and background. It is um, a theological launch pad, as it were, where he, is, he set himself up with lots of themes and key words, and now in chapter 6, these themes are then launched, and uh, much of the answers and the trajectory of these themes and these concepts uh, we see through the remainder of the book. Um, I don't want to recap all of the last two weeks, but simply to be very brief in summary, um, he sees the Lord on the throne. Uh, we've already seen that we, we think that this throne is a future event happening on earth. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Um, and there in the throne of the temple, uh, the Lord is high and lifted up. We made note of the, the phrase high and lifted up, how it had been used in the previous chapters and how it will be used all the way through, through the remainder of the book of Isaiah as well. And the train of his robe fills the temple. We'll make a reference back to that in a little while. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So last time we looked more specifically at the seraphim, and these, these seraphim are cherubim-like creatures. Now, the term seraphim seems to specifically, as we said last time, refer to creatures that are best described as bronze or fiery serpents. And they are very much like the cherubim and associated with them. But here is really the only time that the cherubim are mentioned. And we've talked a little bit about them and recapping it all. The key issues for the seraphim are issues of covering and separation that they were there to cover the glory of God. And they were separating things from his holy presence that should not be there. 
And therefore, the, the seraphim like the, and the cherubim are creatures that um, are, as we said, more like God's mercenaries. They're the protectors. They're the guards. And they would uh, harbor judgment against those who would bring unholiness to God's holy presence. We first uh, saw them in Genesis 3, the cherubim, where in Genesis chapter 3, they are there guarding the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, remember, is the dwelling place of God on earth. It was the first temple on earth, as it were, the first tabernacle on earth. It was the dwelling place of God. And once Adam and Eve sinned, they had to be cast out of the garden. And it was cherubim who were there on the edge of the garden um, who were protecting the garden from them returning, or protect, yeah, protecting the, the presence of God from their return. Um, we also noted last time, and I'll mention again briefly, that they're covering themselves, both their face and their feet. Feet seems to be euphemistic. Feet were referencing the, uh, their genitalia more than anything else. That seems strange to us because we don't really think of angelic beings in those kind of terms, uh, for starters. But certainly pretty much all the ancient literature of that day um, seemed to have no issue with such a concept and it would certainly explain how Genesis 6 came about um, if you're familiar with that but um, I think the, the main point from that was simply that these seraphim are needing to cover themselves even from the glory of God we spoke about this a little bit this morning that the glory of God literally is, is the weightiness of God that he manifests himself in this way and that man has to be protected and covered from that. And so this is the scene that we find ourselves in. Um, and then if we pick up now here in uh, verse 3, one called to another and said, now I don't know about you, but when I picture this scene, and I know when others have pictured this scene, that they have pictured a multitude of seraphim. But we don't know how many there were. And it does say one called to another. And many scholars think that there are in fact two. That while there are many cherubim, that the seraphim uh, are limited to two. There were, there were two specific, which is why they're mentioned so infrequently. I've, I'm kind of coming to the sort of tentative conclusion that the uh, seraphim are maybe a subset or a subspecies of cherubim, as it were. You know, uh, not, not the same, but not completely different. M maybe what, a, uh, what a, a mountain lion is to a tiger, rather than it being just some other creature altogether. Um, something along those lines. And it may well be, and remember that we have the two cherubim that are specifically, as we saw this morning, on the Ark of the Covenant, cov uh, the Ark of the Covenant which are overshadowing that. In the same way, these, these creatures are above God, covering him and covering his glory and um, so it may well be that there is literally two of them that these two seraphim have a particular role slightly distinct from the other cherubim in the in the temple of God and remember the heavenly temple and the earthly temple had the ark of the covenant with the cherubim overlooking the ark overlooking the presence of God so I think there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that in fact there's just two seraphim there's just two of them which is an interesting concept. Or at least there's two here now. But 
we mentioned, well, we won't get too distracted on that, but there are, there are two of them here, at least, and perhaps there's more. And either way, whether it's one group calling to another or literally one calling to another, and I tend towards there being two, this is what they say. They say, holy, holy, holy. Well, if you're going to make a point of anything, you repeat it. And in Hebrew, it's actually that the, the triad of repetition is something that's more of a New Testament concept. And, and to repeat something once was, was a fairly common way in Hebrew to uh, emphasize something. But a, a, a triad of repetition, the holy, 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 was somewhat unusual. Um, it really is emphasizing and uh, making a point here of this. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's amazing how much is wrapped up in this. Let's start with holy first. Holy um, is, we said this this morning, so for those of you here, it's a bit of a repetition really, um, but holy is a, a phrase that speaks of the distinctiveness of God. It's not simply referencing his, um, his sinlessness. Um, his sinlessness is something that um, is part of his holiness, but not defining his holiness. It's interesting to note that other gods of that era that were worshipped by other nations, they would refer to their gods as holy as well. And their gods were holy, but they weren't sinless. If, like me, you believe that many of these nations worshipping their gods, that these gods were actually real beings, they were demonic creatures, as it were, um, that how could something demonic be holy. Well, the idea is that holy is something that is literally set apart. It is distinct. And God is the holy of all, of all that is holy. He is the king of kings. He's the holy of holies. He is the one who is more distinct than anything else that is distinct. So if you're an ancient Babylonian and you're worshipping you know, Baal or something like that, you know, then you're worshipping something that is con you consider greater than you, separate from you, set apart. You're in the, the realm of the, the physical realm, the, the, the realm of, of humanity, and, and they're from the spiritual realm. They're, in, like, they're, in, they're part of the disembodied realm uh, predominantly. And so they're just completely different from us. We, we, would, we would fear them and, 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 and what have you. And so in that sense, they're holy, they're completely distinct. But see, Yahweh is holy in a way that the other gods weren't holy. Yahweh was distinct even amongst the distinct angelic realm. He was, um, he was, dis he, he, was he is distinct insofar as his perfection, his sinlessness, is one of the things that distinguish him, sets him apart from others. And so it's natural that his sinlessness, his perfection, is part of what we associate with the term holy because his sinless perfection is what separates him from everything else. But that's only part of what separates him. He is the only eternal being. He has no beginning and he has no end. There's no other being that, that, that has that, that of which that can be said. And therefore he is distinctive in multiple ways. It's interesting that the rabbis would teach that the, some Christians, by the way, teach holy, 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 being a reference to the Trinity. God the Father is holy, God the Son is holy, God the Holy Spirit is holy. And 
I can see that, but that's really reading into the text. But the rabbis used to like to do that as well. But I actually prefer the rabbinical understanding. They would teach that he was holy, holy, holy in three different realms. That he would be holy, he was holy on the earth, holy in the heavens, and holy in the, the heavens be, or beyond the heavens. Heaven, holy in all the realms in which he treads. And it's interesting that that was say that because the very next phrase is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now your Lord here is in capitals. So we know that this is the name of God. If you remember in verse one, we have Lord without the capitals. That's Adonai. That's basically saying he's the mighty one. He, he's powerful. He's Lord in that sense. Here the Lord is his name. So holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Now the phrase hosts here can be seen to mean armies in the sense of him being the mighty warrior God, that kind of a concept. But the term hosts here often referred to the heavenly hosts and the angelic realm. So these seraphim are saying that God is holy and set apart and distinct amongst the heavenly realm. That's essentially what he's saying. So what is fascinating when you look at it from Isaiah's perspective is Isaiah comes in and he sees these creatures which perhaps could have been serpent-like to some, some degree. Isaiah sees a similar, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel sees a similar scene and he talks about multiple faces like a man, like an ox, like a lion, and he, he sees these different faces upon this creature. This, they have these wings, you know, some, some of the cherubs will have, you know, we just described as having two wings, some have six wings here, like the seraphim, and Isaiah is immediately going to feel like these creatures are set apart, you know? It's not like you, you walk down the road, and oh look, there's, there's, there's a seraphim, just popping into the liquor store down the road. You know, it's, it's, it's something that is so far removed from us. So you would, you would think of these angelic beings as being holy. But because the Lord is there on his throne, the angelic beings in this declaration of holiness are saying, of course, that God is holy in a general sense, but they're specifically emphasizing the distinctiveness of God above even all these creatures in the angelic realm. I think one thing that we fail to understand, it's interesting, we, we sang that in one of the songs just tonight, that we sang about, how, uh, about God being above all gods. And we're, we're not familiar with how that phrase is used. We don't, uh, you know, I think, you know, I certainly grew up in church and when it, the Bible would talk about him being, you know, above all gods or a song where it says he's above all gods. I'm thinking gods in the sense of uh, what are our idols? What are the things that we worship and we prioritize before God? But in the ancient world, the term God was just used of the spiritual angelic realm. An angel would be a, would be a type of God. And God when he's called a God, is called Elohim, God in plural, because he is the God above all gods. He is, he, so him being God, with a little g, puts him in the angelic realm. But he is holy and distinct beyond all those gods. Therefore, he's God with a capital G. And so what this declaration is, is it's a declaration of the distinctiveness of Yahweh 
above and beyond all the other gods that were worshipped, all the angelic beings, fallen and not fallen, and the cry is being led by these seraphim, and they're shouting across one to another over the top of God, over him, saying that this one, Yahweh, upon the throne, is the most set-apart of all set-apart beings. This is just a completely different dynamic to it, doesn't it? You know, as Christians, we'll come and look at this really familiar passage and we'll just say, oh yeah, God is without sin. He's just pure and he's spotless. That's not it at all. He is so far distinctive beyond all the other angelic beings. Now, that's really important that we understand that. It's really important that we understand that because it then goes on uh, to the second part of what they're saying, which is the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you've got to understand this, folks, okay? When it says the earth is full of his glory, if you ever come across a, a, a commentary or a Bible teacher that will say, well, the earth is full of God's glory, that just simply means, you know, look at the majesty of God in the butterfly. Look at the majesty of God in the trees. You know, the earth is full of his glory. That is not what's being said. And that's not how the Bible uses the term. It is very clear that the heavens display the handiwork of God, that God's glory is manifested in some sense in creation. But that's not contextually what's going on here in this passage, and it's certainly not how the, the Old Testament, even the New Testament, typically views this kind of thing. The idea of God's glory was terrifying. That God would show up and there would be smoke, and there would be fire, and there would be this manifestation of God's presence that men would fear. And what is interesting as we look at this, and, and, and I think that we need to, to see that the earth right now is not full of the glory of God. It's not like you're going to walk down the road or you're going to drive to, to work tomorrow and you're going to say, oh my goodness, I had to take a detour because the glory of God just showed up on the middle of Magnolia and I couldn't get past, you know. It, it, you know, when the glory of God showed up when the Israelites were fleeing the Egyptians, the Egyptians couldn't get to them. They were in fear. They were panicking. The glory of God is... Uh, is something that will one day fill the whole earth. And this is part of the reason why I think it's clear, uh, uh, you know, um, that this is a future event and this is happening on earth. This is not just some heavenly vision where he sees what's going on in heaven right now because the declaration is saying the earth is full of God's glory right now. Now, the parallel here with the temple and the earth is absolutely fascinating. In the book of Exodus, when the, we were talking this morning about the building of a tabernacle and all the instructions of the tabernacle's built, the, the, the tabernacle is complete at the end of the book of Exodus. And if, like me, when you first read the book of Exodus, you read it and you're getting bogged down in all of the details of curtains and, you know, gold here and you know, wood there and all of this, you kind of like feel like it's a bit of a damp squid at the end, like the, the cool stuff, the exciting stuff happens early on. But really the whole point of Exodus is the completion of the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 40 in verse 34, it says, 
Um, well, let me just go back. Let me go back one verse. Verse 33, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. That's what you need to know. At the end of verse 33, Exodus 40, Moses has finished the work of a tabernacle. It's done. It's complete. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So in Exodus 40, the glory of God is filling the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because a cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Repeat it, makes a point. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel were set out. If the cloud was not uh, taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The glory of God shows up. Moses can't enter the tent of meeting because the glory of God's there. The cloud, the smoke, the fire, it's there and you can't enter. It's not possible. The same thing happens in 1 Kings chapter 8. And again, I'll just, um, I'll read that real brief, real briefly. Um, in 1 Kings and chapter 8, we have the same thing. This time it is the temple that has been completed. The temple's been completed. And um, the ark is brought into the temple. Um, I'm going to read to you from verse 6. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. Notice the same connections here. For the cherubim spread out the wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. We talked about that this morning. The holy place being the, the first section, and then in the center, the, the holy of holies. And so the poles of the ark of the covenant are sticking out uh, into the holy place. Um, but they could not be seen from outside. Um, sorry, the poles are so long, the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And so they are to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel and they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, okay? So here's your key. The ark of the covenant is now in the holy of holies. The priests leave it there, they come out, they come out of the holy place. Now, the, the, the presence of God couldn't have been in there when they were taking the ark there because there were people there who weren't clean, they weren't able to be there. But now that they've left, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon said that he would, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I've indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell. And so the glory of God comes in and fills the temple. Okay? Now, that, those parallels are really important to us because I want us to note this. First of all, when the glory of God shows up, whoosh, there you are, smoke fire, what have you, and nothing can be done in that. And there's a parallel, by the way, in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have the beginning of the church. 
and the church is now God's temple on earth. And what happens when God, in his, by his presence in the Holy Spirit, shows up in Acts chapter 2? Whoosh, there's this rushing wind, and there's this similar connective link there with that. So when God shows up to his temple, there he is in his glory. Now, the question now should be pretty simple. Does God's glory fill the earth? <laughs> not now, not in that sense, that's for sure. Absolutely not. So God's dwelling place is his temple. And so God's glory, he comes in, his glory fills the temple. His glory fills the tabernacle, his glory fills the temple. His glory comes into the upper room in Acts chapter 2. Now, there is a situation where the Lord is actually on the throne. This is not just smoke. This is not just his glory and his presence. The Lord, in the form of a man, is sitting on the throne. And we know, and we'll talk more about this in future weeks, that this manifestation of God is the person, Jesus Christ. It is the resurrected, exalted Christ sitting on the throne. And the robe, the train of his robe is such that it fills the temple. So where the smoke would be, where the glory would be, is now filled with his robe. So where does the glory go? It goes out of the temple and it fills the whole earth. What is that telling us? It's telling us that the role of the temple, the dwelling place of God, is going to become the entire world. That was the idea from the beginning. God had his dwelling place in Eden, and Adam was to go forth and multiply and fill the earth. And the glory of God was going to fill the earth that way. But sin came in, but God's goal will not be hindered, and the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Let's, I want to turn, I want you to understand that this is a, an eschatological thing. This is not talking about, you know, grasses and what have you. This is very much an end time scenario. And, and there's a couple of passages I want you to look at. Um, let's go firstly to Micah, Micah chapter 1. If you're in your minor prophets, you're looking somewhere in the middle-ish. Just after Jonah. Before your Zechariahs and your Zephaniahs and what have you. Micah chapter 1. So this is the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Mor Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. So this is a testimony to the earth. Okay. Let the Lord, be a Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Now notice this. Lord here is little letters. It's Adonai and holy temple. This is a clear allusion back to Isaiah 6. For behold, Yahweh is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. And so he goes on to bring judgment to Israel. But interesting that God, the Holy One of his temple, is coming out of his place and he's coming down to the earth. 
That's something that we're, we're seeing is that in this whole theme of Isaiah. In the Isaiah, remember the first five chapters has been talking about how God is going to bring judgment, but the judgment is going to be a re- bring about redemption. There is going to be not a judgment that ends in complete destruction, but a judgment that through burning is going to bring redemption, is going to bring holiness. And so God is going to come, but I wanted you to see that link between the Lord and his temple. He's coming out of his temple to tread the earth. The earth needs to be made holy. The earth needs to be cleansed. God needs to deal with sin on the earth. This is the whole theme of Isaiah. Um, There's a few other passages, Habakkuk's a well-known one, where it talks about the glory of God filling the earth. But I I want to turn actually to Psalm 72. I think this is um, the more valuable one for us. This is a psalm of Solomon. It would have come before the time of Isaiah. It's a a, a fascinating psalm, by the way. Um, He says, give the king your justice, O God. Now, who's writing this psalm? It's Solomon, right? And who's Solomon? He's the king. So is he talking about himself? Clearly he's not. And your righteousness to the royal son. It's going to become very clear that this is messianic. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. You see, as you read through this, by the way, it's just fascinating. As you go through, you can see this being a prayer of Solomon that he would rule righteously. And yet at the same time, it's it's a prophecy of the Messiah and how he will rule and will reign. I think it, it doesn't need to be either or in so much as I think Solomon is aware of who the ideal king is, and I think there's elements of him wanting this to be him, but I think he's predominantly speaking of the Messiah. And he goes on, May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout generations. May he be like rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may may uh, the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more we haven't had that yet have we no peace abounding for eternity may he have dominion from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth may desert tribes by down before him his enemies lick the dust may the kings of tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute may the kings of sheba and seba bring gifts may all the kings fall down before him and all nations serve him have all the nations bowed down to worship and serve him, this king? Not yet. But what have we seen in Isaiah in the early chapters? Isaiah speaks specifically in chapter 2 about God ruling and reigning through his Messiah on the earth and all the nations coming to give honor and worship. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor uh, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land of the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. And all of this you see very specific physical blessings of a physical kingdom where God's uh, anointed one, his righteous son, will rule and reign. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. 
his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. This is a magnificent psalm. This is the Messiah ruling and reigning. This is written before the time of Isaiah. This is talking of the king who will come and the nations coming and worshipping. Now verse 18, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. So because of all this is going to happen, blessed be Yahweh. Because he's going to do all of this, blessed be him. Bless his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. You see, this description that we've just read through the entirety of this, this reigning and ruling, this, this transformation of the earth, the nations worshipping him, this is the earth being filled with his glory. This is a future thing to be looked forward to. And yet in Isaiah 6, this is the situation. Isaiah is having a vision of a future time when the earth is full of his glory. When Yahweh has shown himself to be distinguished above all other spiritual beings. He is in charge and he is sovereign. His glory has been manifest. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, speaks of how the church in God's plan is there to declare the wisdom of God to the spiritual realm. It's as if God is saying, hey, hey, angels, cherubim, seraphim, demons, I want you to all look and see. You see my church? Ah, yeah, you see my church. You know where this is going. That he brags on the church because we are an expression of his wisdom. And here at this point, his victory is not something that is anticipated, but his victory is something that has happened in the past tense. The victory is something that has happened. And I want you to see that this is uh, the, the, how the presence of God is shown here. It says in, in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds. In other words, the entire building from the very bottom shook at the voice of him who called. And, and notice here that the ones calling are in verse 3, the seraphim. So it's even their voices are causing the temple to shake. The declaration of God's holiness, the declaration of his victory is enough to shake. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes people kind of skim read these familiar passages and they think that the one calling whose voice makes everything shake is God's voice. But it's not. It's clearly the voice of the seraphim. Why would their voices make the temple shake? Are they, is it something about them and their greatness and their holiness? No, it's the message that they have. It is a declaration, as I said, of victory. That God has accomplished his purposes and now the whole earth is full of his glory. So the foundations of the thresholds shook. And I want you to see, by the way, that when we come to this passage, I talked already in recent weeks about how this transitions from the first five chapters. And chapter uh, five uh, was finishing off in, in, in chapter five and verse 25. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked. 
The shaking of the mountains comes with the anger of God. Um, many years ago, I was involved in some not-so-sound churches, and they, one of their favorite songs was about how, did you hear the mountains tremble? Like, oh, this is wonderful. Look, mountains are trembling. No, that's not a good thing. <laughs> you don't want to see the mountains tremble. That's the anger and the wrath of God being poured out. And what's the result of it? Well, the end of verse 25 is, their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the street. You see, God, the shaking is, is God bringing judgment. And you're like, when you put this all together, and again, the house is filled with smoke. So again, in the temple, we have the literal smoke. Again, the picture, though, is that the glory is now being pushed out into the whole earth. It's not solely a place of a temple, but it's solely the whole earth. God has transformed the earth into his temple. His original mission at Eden has now been complete. And the picture is one of the majesty, the glory, and the holiness of God. God the victor. God above all spiritual beings. God who has accomplished his purposes. And that is really where we are, we are at now with the, the book of Isaiah. That we see, uh, we see all of this. Now, I want us to make another connection with earlier chapters. If we go back to chapter 4... We see the, uh, the glory of Israel in chapter 4. Um, in that day, chapter 4, verse 2, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Why survivors? Well, we know that from chapter 1. In chapter 1, God is going to judge Israel, but the burning fire of his judgment will purify the remnant to make them holy but there'll be many who will die in the judgment that's very clear as well so it's the survivors who've survived the judgment and he who is left in zion and remains in jerusalem will be called holy everyone who has been recorded for life in jerusalem when the lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of zion and cleansed the blood stains of jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning so we have in chapter 4, and we saw it at the time, just this whole concept that God is going to create holiness, transforming holiness by judgment, burning up all that is not holy and what remains being holy. The, the picture is like the refining of gold, where gold will go into the furnace, and in the furnace the impurities will come up and they could be removed, and thus gold could be made holy. That's what God's going to do with Israel. He will make her holy through his judgment. A spirit of judgment, a spirit of burning. Then the Lord, Yahweh, will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all there will be, uh, over all the glory there will be a canopy. And so we see these same kind of terminologies. We see here in Isaiah 4, the glory of God. We see in Isaiah 4 again, the mention of smoke, like we have smoke here in the temple. And the connection to it all is holy. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. God is holy. And Isaiah was clearly heavily influenced by this vision in a multitude of ways but one of the ways is is that the most common term that isaiah uses for god in the book of isaiah is the holy one of israel the holy one of israel he uses it 26 times in the rest of the bible it's only found six times 
He was impacted by the holiness, the distinctiveness, the set-apartness, as it were, of God. And there in chapter 4, Israel, who survives this burning judgment, they are going to be declared to be holy as well. And because God has rid the world of anything that is unholy, the earth can now be filled with his glory. And so it is that the earth is filled with his glory, foundations show, the house is filled with smoke. In conclusion, I want to simply take two more things. One concerns Isaiah and one concerns us. With regards to Isaiah, we mentioned this, we mentioned it in passing a few times, but we just need to really emphasize this again. We now, at the end of the first four verses, come to Isaiah. He, Isaiah sees this, he sees this, he describes what he sees, and then in chapter five, uh, verse 5, rather, where we'll be uh, next time, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. He becomes aware of his situation. Everything thus far is painting a horror story. It is painting fear, it is painting judgment. There is the holiness of God above all creatures, there's the angelic beings, there are these seraphim who are God's mercenaries that separate people from the holiness of God. In the, the, the literature of that day amongst other nations, they were feared. They were, they were the ones who would bring God's fiery judgment. And God has, has been declared already in the first five chapters, as we've seen multiple times now, that God is going to burn Israel. God is going to judge Israel. That what is, holy can, uh, what is unholy cannot stand. It must become holy uh, or it must be destroyed. This is the whole picture, the whole build-up to this section. So when Isaiah... He sees this scene, sees the angelic realm, when the foundations shake, when the, there's smoke, when, when there is the angelic beings, when they declare the holiness of God. In all of that, then Isaiah is going to be petrified. Why? Because he is not holy and he shouldn't be there. So we'll talk about that more next time and how that will be seen and how that will be viewed. For us, finally, this is how we need to understand it. Isaiah's entire ministry was, was grounded in this moment. This impacted how he taught, how he lived, what he did his whole life. As I said, the Holy One of Israel is clearly a result of him seeing this scene. What, what happens when he has his redemption and, and God says, whom shall I send? Here I am, send me. He's immediately willing to be God's servant because of what he's seen. There's a danger that we have in our world, in our lives, in our culture, in our societies, and, and in our church. And that is familiarity with God. I, Isaiah would have been a, a believer, no doubt. He would have, I, I believe he was saved, saved by faith, that he believed in Yahweh and that he sought to the limited ability he could to keep God's commands. There's nothing to suggest otherwise. But he never seen God. We, we, we're, we can become familiar with God. We, we grow up, if we grow up in the church, knowing Bible stories. We grow up hearing about the Bible and God this and God that and Jesus this and Jesus that. And 
We don't know him. Isaiah, no doubt, thought he knew God. And he sees him. And in that, in that, in that split second, in that moment, he is, he is recognizing how far removed he is from God. How distant he is from God. How far beyond him God is. See, here's the, here's the, here's the irony. If a couple of seraphim showed up in our world, the glory of God manifesting, people would bow. People would say, what is this that is so far beyond my understanding? They would be lauded. People would be scared. People would be amazed. And yet, the seraphim that Isaiah sees are saying, this one on the throne is holy beyond holy beyond holy. He is distinct beyond us. And yet, we are people who, if we saw something from the angelic realm, we go, wow, look, amazing, the glory of God. We'd be probably petrified, as we might well should be. But, you know, all of that, and yet we're blasé about God. And in the time between God's glory coming into the tabernacle, God's glory coming into the temple, God's glory being there, in that time, after that, before God's glory fills the earth, God's glory now dwells in us. This is why, you know, and again, I think sometimes familiarity doesn't help. I think most of us are familiar with the, the verse where Paul says, you know, he, he warns us away from sexual immorality and he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And we're, oh yeah, and then people say, you know what, I shouldn't eat too many burgers because my body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it just becomes this, I'm not saying that's that you eat as many burgers as you like, I'm just saying, you know, it's become this, it's become minimalized. Oh yeah, your body's a temple. And people, people outside the church now are familiar with that phrase. You know, yeah, well, my body's a temple, so I'm going to drink my green smoothie, you know, that kind of thing. This is the temple of God. This is the majesty of God, the glory of God, the distinctiveness, the set-apartness of God. This is God where Isaiah, a godly young man who, who, as far as we know, was a worshipper of Yahweh, he sees God in his presence and he goes, oh no, I'm screwed, I'm done, I'm, 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 this is it. There is nothing that is, that is, that is fitting for me other than me being burnt up and destroyed. And yet, we see this, we read this passage of scripture and we go away and we live our lives like God's not important. We live our lives like this, this isn't real. And the reminder to us in all of this, and we'll, we'll mention this again next time, no doubt, when we look at Isaiah's reaction. But I want us today to know that our God is holy, holy, holy. 
He is distinctive in his, in his eternal nature, in his character, in his attributes, in his sovereignty, in his majesty, in his sinless perfection. In all of these regards, he is distinctive and beyond every other being that is on this world and not on this world. And one day, this whole earth will be filled with his glory. And really, the only question for us is this. Are we going to be on the earth enjoying the glory of God as described in Psalm 72? Or are we going to be burnt up? That's it. And my prayer is simply this, that I and you, we would remember who God is and we would live our lives in light of that just as Isaiah did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these verses. May we not brush aside your majesty, not disregard your glory, not think lightly on your holiness, but may we, may we see you and see your majesty. And may we, like Isaiah, live lives that come from that place. Amen.